and Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings, listeners, from the vdare.com castle in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, whither I have decamped in order to attend this weekend's conference. I can't give you any kind of report on the conference as it doesn't actually get underway until tomorrow morning, Saturday. We're all looking forward to it, most especially to the prospect of pouring boiling oil from the battlements on any antifar types that show up. I'll have more to say about the conference next week. Long-time listeners will know that Radio Derb sometimes has a theme. This is one of those times. Probably I'll exhaust the theme halfway through the podcast and wander off in other directions, but I nonetheless like to think that listeners will come away with the theme humming away at the front of their minds. So, what is this week's theme? See if you can figure it out. What do the following nations all have in common? China, Russia, India, Japan, Britain, France, Germany. Let's just say all the European nations. Continuing my list, MENA, M-E-N-A, that's the Middle East and North Africa, all those nations. And then the USA, Canada, and Mexico. Yes, that's a lot of nations containing most of the world's people. So, what do they have in common? Give up? They are all entirely in the Northern Hemisphere. That's what. The Southern Hemisphere takes up very little space in our thinking about current affairs or in the pages of our news media. That is perfectly understandable. As I just said, there are not many people down there. Not much land, either. If you have a globe of the world on your desk, just turn it upside down and look, staring directly at the South Pole. Other than Antarctica, Pretty much everything else you see is just water. The only continent making a respectable showing is South America. Most of Brazil and Ecuador, all of Peru, Bolivia, Paraguay, Chile, Argentina and Uruguay. There's a fair-sized piece of sub-Saharan Africa. There are Australia and New Zealand and a good piece of Indonesia, and that's about it. Except for all those itty-bitty island nations and some microscopic outposts of northern hemisphere countries, like the Falkland Islands and American Samoa. So, it's not surprising that the southern hemisphere isn't newsy. If you haven't given a moment's thought this past week to anything going on down there, don't feel bad. It's normal and reasonable. 
Stuff does happen in those watery wastes, though. A commentator isn't casting his net worldwide if he leaves them out. He's not being thorough. In a spirit of commentarial thoroughness, therefore, here are some items from Under the Southern Cross. First, with a segment each, the only two Southern Hemisphere nations I am at all mentally engaged with. New Zealand and Uruguay. The engagement is, in both cases, entirely sentimental. I have never been to either place. My father spent what I am pretty sure were the happiest years of his life in New Zealand around 1930. My half-brother Noel, who died six years ago at age 86, was born there. I grew up hearing Dad's nostalgia-drenched stories about New Zealand and his exhortations to head out to the Antipodes, first chance I got. Australia and New Zealand, the future of the world. If you try that line out on an Antipodean of the cynical sort, which I have, he is liable to reply, That's right, we are the future of the world, and we always will be. I did actually try to get to New Zealand once. I'll read you the story from a piece that I posted at National Review Online in December 2009. Longish quote from myself. After graduating college and working a couple of years, I decided to give New Zealand a try. I went to New Zealand House in London. There was a guy at a desk in the lobby. I approached him and stated my purpose. He pushed a printed sheet of paper at me. It was a list of occupations, most of them skilled manual trades, carpenters, electricians, and an astonishing number of things to do with sheep. You in any of those occupations? asked the Kiwi. Me. No, I'm a computer programmer. He took back the sheet and scrutinised it. Nope, don't see it. I guess we've got all we need. Sorry. I never did get to see New Zealand. I did, though, walk out of New Zealand House with a grudging respect for the clarity and rationality of their immigration procedures. Forty years on, they maintain those high standards. They recently denied a settlement visa to a British woman on the grounds that she was too fat. End quote. That was me 12 years ago, writing about me 50-some years ago. Since then, New Zealand has followed the rest of the Anglosphere down into the foul, fetid, dark pit of wokeness.
They have even allowed settlement by Somalis, a sure sign of collective national insanity. The candle lit by my dad still burns faintly, though, and I still dream of seeing Timaru, Wanganui, Christchurch, and Tamatafaka Ihanga Koaoao O Tamatea Turi Pukakapiki Maonga Horo Nuku Pokai Fenoa Kitana Tau before I die. And then, Uruguay. I have even less excuse for sentimentality about Uruguay than is the case with New Zealand. I've never been there and have no family connections with the place. To the best of my recollection, I have met only one Uruguayan in person, and that was a fleeting encounter. Still, it looks to me that Uruguay has a lot going for it. It's a good manageable size for a country, 68,000 square miles, a tad smaller than Missouri. The climate is good and the population is homogenous, 88% white European. It's modestly prosperous and politically stable. It minds its own national business and it's hard to see why anyone would want to attack or invade it. Whenever I have enthused about Uruguay in these tones, in my internet commentary, I have received two kinds of emails from the place in response. The more usual kind thanks me for my flattering words and affirms that, yes, Uruguay is a good place to live, if you don't mind nothing much happening from one year's end to the next. I actually don't, so these emails don't tarnish my enthusiasm. The other kind of incoming email is from Uruguayans telling me to shut the hell up. They fear that I might incite a wave of immigration, and they don't want that. We have all the people we need, they tell me. Well, yes. Radio Derb does have tremendous worldwide influence, so perhaps I should mute my enthusiasm a bit. To those of us with great power, there comes great responsibility. Although, in fact, the South American news service Infobuy reported just this week that applications for residency in Uruguay have been surging this past two years. Sample quote. 2021 ended for the country with a record number of applications for residency before the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. End quote. Ah, the power of Radio Derb. I don't have any other news to report from Uruguay, but... I may have some walking back to do. The main theme in last week's podcast was corruption. Along the way there, I noted that political corruption comes with an embedded conundrum. I used the example of Jimmy Carter for illustration. Quote from myself. 
So far as I know, there has never been any plausible charge of corruption against Carter. Not before his presidency, not during it, not after it. He is squeaky clean. He was, however, by common agreement, and the judgment of voters, a simply terrible president. So there's a conundrum. Who will you vote into the presidency? Or the governorship, or the mayoralty, or the house or senate seat, or the county executive? The squeaky clean doofus with a head full of dumb ideas? Or the slightly tarnished player with impressive skill at getting things done? End quote. Right after that segment, I had one on Uruguay, specifically on Jose Mujica, who was president of Uruguay from 2010 to 2015. I noted that he was exceptionally honest, no trace of corruption, and with a very frugal lifestyle. In his youth, I observed he was a Castroite guerrilla, and he spent a lot of time in jail. But wisdom and tolerance seem to have come with age. That brought in an email from a listener in Argentina. Argentina shares a border with Uruguay. I'll just read the email to you as I got it. Quote, Regarding your comment about corruption and Uruguay, let me help you get real. Mujica's vice president was Raúl Sendic. He resigned on proven charges of corruption in 2017. He is the son of the founder of the Tupamaros guerrillas, Raúl Sendic Sr., Mujica's former boss. As for Mujica, he is, no doubt, not corrupt. But... The argument you made about Jimmy Carter applies. His presidency was a bad one. And corruption, although minor, was widespread. As per the general Uruguay atmosphere in this sense, you are right. Me being from Argentina, where corruption is rife, the lack of it in the general Uruguayan society is very, very noticeable. End quote. I'm a big fan of reality and true facts, so I'm always glad to be put back on the straight and narrow when I've gone astray, as I may have done with Mujica. Thank you, sir. I am also glad, of course, to have been right about the relatively high standard of political conduct in Uruguay. I shall continue to think happy thoughts about the place. When I'm not dreaming of tamata fakatangi hanga koawo or tomatea turi pukaka piki maunga horonoku poko fenua ki tanatao. Back to the Southern Hemisphere at large. Among its other charms, that half of the world's surface 
has no nuclear weapon states. No doubt Northern Hemisphere missile submarines, armed with nukes, lurk under the surface down there. But no Southern Hemisphere nation has nukes. This has not always been the case. White-run South Africa had a nuke programme and actually built six nukes. But they were dismantled in 1991, when it was plain that blacks would take charge of the country. This, said the government of the time, was in order to make a significant contribution toward regional stability and peace. Not everyone believed them about their motive there. Quote from Wikipedia, slightly edited. In 1993, Bill Keller of the New York Times reported that popular suspicion in southern African nations held that the timing of disarmament indicated a desire to prevent a nuclear arsenal from falling into the hands of a native African and coloured government with the collapse of the apartheid system. South Africa's white president, Frederick de Klerk, denied such a motivation when asked about this in a 2017 interview. End quote. Some people can be so cynical, can't they? Why would anyone be worried about nuclear weapons in the hands of, uh, oh, say, Jacob Zuma? At any rate, no southern hemisphere nation has nukes. All the nuke-equipped nations are in the northern hemisphere. Well, in the Northern Hemisphere. There's hardly any nuclearity below the Tropic of Cancer. Just half of India and a sliver of China. Having nukes isn't just a northern thing. Zone-wise, it's a northern temperate, northern subtropical and northern frigid thing. Perhaps up here above the tropics, there's a deep unconscious belief that nukes might warm us up a bit. Which, of course, indeed they would. Until nuclear winter set in. Now that Mr Putin has got us all thinking about a possible great power nuclear exchange, the southern hemisphere is looking more attractive than ever. A real, all-out, annihilating exchange would be massively destructive in the Northern Hemisphere. But it's hard to see why anyone would bother nuking New Zealand or Chile or Madagascar. If you've read some Cold War era nuclear Armageddon fiction, novels like Neville Shute's On the Beach or David Graham's down to a sunless sea, you will know that a major nuclear war would lead eventually to the atmosphere of the entire Earth being polluted with radioactivity. It would take a while before the southern hemisphere air was really bad, though. 
Time enough, perhaps, to get a survival plan going. There would be far less immediate physical destruction south of the equator, perhaps none at all. Civilization might survive down there. Nowhere on earth will life be easygoing fun after an all-out nuclear war, but the southern hemisphere will fare better than the northern. That's where you'd want to be. And that is where the world's smartest people do in fact want to be. They have thought it through, as I just did. Five years ago, in my monthly diary, I posted a link to this story in one of the British newspapers. Headline. Apocalypse Warning. Billionaires buy up land in New Zealand as they look for safe haven. Sample quote. Silicon Valley tech leaders are snapping up property in Australasia as they believe that the apocalypse is near. End quote. Peter Thiel, who is a very smart person indeed, has gone to the length of taking out New Zealand citizenship. Wait, though. This is all fantasy, isn't it? Our leaders wouldn't be so crazy as to embark on mutual assured destruction, would they? If you'd asked me a year ago, I would have laughed and said, eh, probably not. I'm not laughing now, though. Not with the US president mumbling about white supremacy and shaking hands with an invisible friend. Not with Vladimir Putin telling his people that Ukraine, which has a Jewish president and which was horribly ravaged by Germany in World War Two, that Ukraine is full of Nazis. Not with Xi Jinping sealing his citizens up in their apartment buildings without food just to stop a flu outbreak. And these are the relatively sane players. Pakistan has nukes. North Korea has nukes, heaven help us. Civilization got started up here in the Northern Hemisphere 5,000 years ago. Perhaps we're coming to the end of that story. If there is still civilization 5,000 years on from now, it may be under the Southern Cross. No nukes in the Southern Hemisphere? Wait, I may have spoken too soon. Wednesday this week, the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands announced that his government had signed a comprehensive security arrangement with Communist China. We don't know the precise terms of the agreement, but what was claimed to be a draft version leaked last month seems to include a possible Chaikom military base in the islands. Let me fill in some background here. The Solomon Islands is one of those itty-bitty island nations I mentioned a couple of segments ago. Population less than 700,000. It's in the Southern Hemisphere, just barely. 
the biggest island, Guadalcanal, a name very familiar to Americans, I think, is about 600 miles south of the equator. The nearest big landmass is Papua New Guinea, PNG for short, a poor and violent sinkhole of a place populated mainly by low-IQ Melanesian Aborigines who believe in magic. Random quote from the Wikipedia article on PNG, quote, An estimated 50 to 150 alleged witches are killed each year in Papua New Guinea, end quote. Australia is not far away to the south, and the Aussies try to keep down the general level of disorder in PNG, but it's a thankless job. The Solomon Islands, although an independent nation, is racially and culturally an annex of PNG, so you can imagine how things are there. The small amount of commerce is managed by overseas Chinese immigrants, against whom the locals are of course resentful. There are anti-Chinese riots from time to time, when the different Solomon Islands sub-ethnicities aren't rioting against each other. Just this last November there was a major riot, both against the government and against the Chinese. A lot of the capital city's Chinatown district was burned out. That draft version of this week's agreement apparently allows the Chaicoms to use their troops to defend local Chinese. In short, this agreement gives the Chaicoms a toehold in the place, in the South Pacific, with the ability to expand the toehold to a big fat footprint, probably including naval, land and air bases. The nearest point of Chinese territory to the Solomons is about 4,000 miles away, so the Chaicoms are putting out a long imperial arm here. Australia, which is much closer, just a few hundred miles away across the Coral Sea, is understandably not happy about this. Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, reacted to this week's agreement by vowing that his country would not have a, quote, submissive relationship with China. Further quote, We have always stood up to China because it's in our interests. End quote. What is Australia to do? If a serious China-Australia conflict breaks out, the odds against Australia look pretty forbidding. Population of Australia, 26 million. Population of China, 1.4 billion. Struth. I seriously doubt that the Chaicoms have any notion of invading and occupying Australia. 19th century pith-helmet imperialism isn't their game. And anyway, they don't have the manpower. Their game is commercial domination. 
the whole world paying rent to them. Trade follows the flag. The purpose of those air and naval bases they're building, wherever they can, is to protect the flow of rent payments, with the option to exert a little physical control when it looks excusable to do so. For example, to protect overseas Chinese communities. Whether I'm right about this or wrong, the solution for Australia is the same. It's the same solution that has applied throughout history to all smaller nations up against an overbearing big one. The same that I've prescribed to the Europeans. Australia needs to unite in a common defence alliance, both military and commercial, with the other free nations of her region. The word free here, having the strictly limited meaning, not yet under any measure of CHICOM control. Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, uh, some of the other Southeast Asian countries, and yes, those itty-bitty island nations. Together, as an alliance, they should be able to stand up to the Chaikons. Should Taiwan be included in the list? That's for the alliance to decide. Speaking as an American and an isolationist, I'll say what the kids say. Not my circus, not my monkey. Australian politics, yes. VDare.com's tax status prevents us from endorsing political candidates in the USA. But I'm pretty sure, though I shall confirm it with the boss, I'm pretty sure that we can endorse candidates in other countries. Well, there's a federal election in Australia next month, May 21st, four weekends from now. A friend of mine is running for one of the Senate seats for the state of New South Wales. Australia, I should explain, is divided into six states. Each state elects 12 senators. My pal has asked me to put out a word on his behalf to my listeners and readers in Australia. I'm glad to help. The candidate's name is William Lang. L-A-I-N-G. He's running, as I said, he's running for one of the New South Wales Senate seats. And he's running as an independent he declares his three lead policies to be number one, freedom of speech. In the USA, says Lang, he would be very near to being a First Amendment absolutist. Number two, opposition to climate change hysteria. Australia signed on last year to the Glasgow Climate Pact, although in a half-hearted way, that left climate activists dissatisfied. 
Lang thinks that even that was giving too much to the climate nuts. Australia, he tells me, is shutting down her coal-fired power plants, leaving Australia at the mercy of the Chicoms for solar panels, batteries and wind turbines. His slogan, he says, is energy production in the democracies. And number three, old age care, reform and spending. Australian listeners who are voters in New South Wales, please give William Lang a look. He's running as an independent, so without the resources of the established parties behind him. He's smart, honest and patriotic though, and those three lead policies, once again, freedom of speech, sanity on climate change and energy, and aged care, are all worthwhile causes. A listener has chidden me about my observation that Russia-Ukraine is the first war of any significance to be fought between nations in demographic modernity. That is low fertility, declining workforce and swelling numbers of geezers. Nonsense, he says. The nations that fought World War II went into it with low levels of fertility. There is something to that. Young male deaths in World War I had serious effects on fertility, especially in France. So did the Depression. France's total fertility rate actually went below replacement, bottoming out at one7 in 1920. Replacement level, remember, is 2.1 children per woman. By 1925, however, it was back up to 2.44. When the Depression hit in the 30s, it went back down all the way to 2.1, precisely replacement level. In 1940, that was. It went back up after the war, peaked in 1950 and has been sliding downwards ever since. France has now been below replacement level since the late 1970s. That's the demographic modernity I'm talking about. Germany similar. There was a fertility plunge all the way through the early 20th century dropping below replacement in the late 1920s. By the time World War II started in earnest, though, in 1940, fertility was well above replacement level. Britain, I'll allow, was below replacement through the 30s and World War II, bottoming out around 1.8. That was after a long dive through the late 19th and early 20th centuries, much like Germany. Japan? Forget about it. Total fertility rate was above four when they hit Pearl Harbor. It didn't drop below three until 1955. The USA? Total fertility rate fell through the Depression, bottomed out at 
2.06 in 1940, and then rose all through the war and up to 1960, when it hit 3.58. Yep, the baby boom. It's been downhill ever since, below replacement since the early 70s. For comparison once again, and keeping the replacement figure of 2.1 in mind, today's Russia is at 1.8, Ukraine at 1.23. That's demographic modernity. Leading up to World War II, fertility rates occasionally and briefly dropped to 1.8, but 1.23 was totally unknown. Well, in fact, that's one part of demographic modernity. Another part is all those unemployable geezers I mentioned. Fast swelling numbers of them in all developed nations to be cared for and paid for. Fertility may have taken a dip in the 1930s, but not many people were living past 80. Now, half of us do. So, with all proper respect to my listener, I repeat my claim that we are seeing a new thing. War between two nations in demographic modernity. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Just a couple this week, as I'm over my time budget. Imprimis. Florida banned a whole slew of math textbooks last week on the grounds that they included topics that didn't belong in math instruction. Reading about that, we all naturally thought of critical race theory. In idle moments, in fact, I amused myself by thinking up CRT-themed math problems. Sample. Harmless jogger Snaptavius is lynched by a white mob numbering 150 people. All are, of course, white supremacists and Donald Trump voters. 56% are active members of the Klan. 22% collect Nazi memorabilia. 14% are both Klan members and collectors of Nazi memorabilia. How many are neither Klan members nor Nazi memorabilia collectors? End sample. Hey, I can do this stuff. Maybe I can write another math textbook. If the April 22nd New York Times can be believed, however, and I'll allow that's a big flashing red if, CRT is not much of the problem. They reviewed 21 of the offending books and they tell us that, quote, in most of the books there was little that touched on race never mind an academic framework like critical race theory, end quote. So what did the Florida Department of Education 
find objectionable in these books. Social-emotional learning. That's what? Basically, using math class to teach the kiddies about feelings. Whoa, 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 feelings. I would actually rather it was critical race theory. You can at least work some actual math into that, as I just did. You can't get much math out of the girly emoting on display in the examples that the Times offers. Best of all, of course, would be to limit the content of math textbooks to inanimate objects. You can count things, measure things, and deduce conclusions from statements about counting and measuring without any reference to human emotions at all. It's called math, and it's beautiful. Item. The camp of the saints is getting closer by the day. Actually, by the year. This is classic frog boiling. Breitbart reported this week that the number of attempts by third worlders to break into EU countries has risen to its highest level since 2016. They say that excludes refugees from Ukraine, which is not a third world country, although Vladimir Putin seems intent on making it one. But then they quote a French parliamentarian telling us that, quote from him, a third of the refugees who pass through Ukraine, who do not come from Ukraine, but from sub-Saharan Africa in particular, use this new migratory route to come to Europe. End quote. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Black African fertility remains firmly, with only slight and slow declines, firmly at sensational levels. Niger 6.8. Congo 5.6, Somalia 5.3, Nigeria 4.6, and so on. Breitbart reports migrant numbers in thousands and tens of thousands. A few more years, likely very few, it'll be hundreds of thousands and millions. The astounding thing is that politicians in Europe's biggest, most important nations have no idea what to do about it. In this weekend's French presidential election, it has been discussed, but only in careful, timid terms. And the less timid of the two candidates, immigration-wise, Marine Le Pen is trailing in the polls. In a list of key election issues by the Euronews service, Immigration is fourth, behind inflation, the environment and Covid. Britain is even worse. The Prime Minister there, Boris Johnson, has no interest at all in controlling immigration. He's had to be dragged, kicking and screaming, to even say anything about it. His scheme to ship 
illegals to Rwanda will, as I explained last week, come to nothing. And I'm sure Johnson knows that, and knew it when he came up with the idea. And that is Britain's Conservative Party. The opposition Labour Party, which will likely take charge after the next election, due sometime in the next two years, the Labour Party is heartily, vocally in favour of unlimited mass immigration. Britain's politics, like America's, is dominated by two parties, neither of whom is interested in controlling immigration. It's really astonishing, although it's more astonishing in Europe, which has Africa's population bomb ticking away a couple of short boat rides from its south. I guess boiling frogs is easier than you'd think. That's all I have, ladies and gents. Thank you for your time and attention and for your many interesting, informative and argumentative emails. Tuesday this week was something of a milestone for me. It was on April 19th, 2002, that I acquired US citizenship. That's the date on my naturalization certificate. So Tuesday was my 20th anniversary. Thank you, America, for taking me in. Thank you for the pleasant and comfortable home you gave to me and my family, for useful work to do, for beautiful vistas, for security and prosperity, and the liberty to say out loud what I believe to be true. I have tried to give something back, and I shall keep trying. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. <laughs>